When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic, to cosplay, to Schitt's Creek, to Supernatural, and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. And welcome to this special interview episode of It's a Fandom Thing. I am very excited to be sitting down. I'm going to let her explain what her exact title is so that she can do it the justice that it deserves. But I am sitting down with Jenny Steven, virtually, not together, but virtually sitting down to talk about fandom and digital marketing, but also just fandom and finding your place in fandom and finding how to use fandom, right, in marketing. So Jenny, why don't you take it away and tell everybody what you do? So I work in entertainment and I specifically work with sci-fi geek fantasy properties and franchises in particular. And I do what's called audience development. So in old school entertainment terms, this was how do you go get your audience? How do you grow your audience? I've created fandom development as my title because what I specifically focus on is matching fandoms with their IPs, with those franchises they love. That's the simplest version of what I do, but obviously it's, it is a lot of relationship building and making sure that the studios or the production companies or the IP holders are listening to the fandom. And that, I mean, that's just, I, you know, I will be honest, I didn't even know this necessarily existed, that this job existed. <laughs> I, I don't mean that as like a, a no, bad no, thing. No, no, it didn't. Just, yeah, it just, it didn't. Did you, so did you help create this whole position? It's, I know, I would never, I would never be that bold <laughs> to say that. Well, it came out of social and digital. So I, I started an entertainment production, content production, fell into digital super early. So um, I am old, like OG. So I started, I got into digital in 1986 and um, was in entertainment production and really got into it um, probably at 92, starting in 92. But what ended up happening was with the advent of digital marketing and then specifically social marketing is that you had this growth of fandom online, digital fandom. And I was just talking to another friend the other day about, you know, the definition of fandom and where do we think it started? And I'm like, well, okay, look, if you're talking about sports or music, you know, Beethoven and Mozart had fandoms, but in terms of digital fandom for our type of geeky sci-fi fantasy properties, you're really talking Star Trek in the original series, which would be Mm -hmm. offline fandoms. And then X-Files is really where any kind of digital fandom took off because they were on Usenet groups and AOL chat forums. And 
what ended up happening is as we got into digital and social, we got more, it became obvious to the franchise holders that we needed to pay attention to fandom. And I was in content production, content marketing, all digital, and was lucky enough that nobody wanted to handle the geek properties. They didn't think it was a big deal. So I got to work on X-Files and Buffy and all of these in video games really early on where it got to be kind of like, give it to Jenny, she'll do it. And a lot of us in the digital agencies and social media agencies started to realize, obviously, as we're hiring community managers and we're community managers ourselves, that there are huge fandoms online that are being ignored, that we're being, uh, we're surviving and thriving because of themselves, because of what they were doing, because of fanfic or just their own get togethers in real life. But nobody on the content side, except for a couple, we'll talk about that, that were good and paying attention early on, were doing anything to build relationships with them. And so there's there's a circle of social and digital media people who realized what was going on. Mm-hmm. And for me, it just, I lucked out that I happened to be there. I was at a studio. I was doing social and digital content production and marketing, and I was a geek. So it kind of all came together at one point for me, which was incredibly cool. But there there was a pretty tight group of us that all realized, okay, wait a minute, we need to be building relationships and we need to pay attention and spend time with the fandom. And that, I, it started, I mean, it started in the nineties, but it really hit its, its stride in the late 2000s. And then in the 2010s is when people on the studio and production side actually said, instead of, you know, a buck 99 and a cup of coffee for my campaign money, I actually started to get budgets to reach out to Mm -hmm. fandoms. And there are, obviously we can talk about all the ways that you go to where the fan is and they started spending money on it. And so by 2015, I knew this is what I wanted to do all the time, not any of the other stuff. So that's when I just dove into the deep end and said, I think this is a thing. And there were a couple of friends of mine, Chris Longfield over at Phanthropology. Um, There's maybe 10 or 12 of us that had all said, okay, you know what? This is something that is a career. Yeah, because I do think, um, you know, especially when you said there, the the fans were just out there and no one's reaching them. No one wants to talk to them. And I definitely think that's the case, especially – I, you know, since we are a podcast that is primarily from the female perspective mm-hmm. and you really find with female fans, especially, and I'm sure you have experienced this yourself, especially in sci-fi fantasy. I also think horror since horror is my favorite, right. you find we kind of get lost in the shuffle. So do you try to stress not just reaching out to men, but also to the female fan base or female identifying fan base as well? We have to. I mean, I, as a woman in an industry that for probably 20 years, I'd be the only woman in a room because I wasn't doing the marketing side per se. I was in this awesome, but very weird to everybody else confluence of computer science. I could, you know, I could put together a computer and I could do HTML and I could do Java, but I also knew what we needed to do for content and creative and reach out. So th- I was this weird, whatever, I didn't even have a title, whatever it was I was doing, there was nobody but men in the room because at the time, either the entertainment executives or the computer science group was almost all men. And then the marketing would be women. 
So it was a very bizarre way to try to find an audience. And one of the things that became just immediately, I thought, obvious was that I'm not the only one. I'm not the only girl. I'm not because, you know, I was 29, 30. I was not the only girl that loved Buffy and wanted to be online or loved X-Files. And in fact, as I found, as I worked with research firms that were, and I was lucky working at Fox, I had a research department who thought I was nuts, but they would run these reports for me. The demographics were primarily women. And it's one of the, the funniest conversations and presentations I ever had at Fox was for Buffy and my my boss, which you know was in charge at the time, was a woman, and she and I were convinced that the, the broader audience was women. I mean, you know, yeah, of course. And for some reason, this was not making sense. I don't know why the powers that be were thinking otherwise, but I was also working on Stargate at the time, both of them. And the primary audience for Stargate was also female. And so I went and I had them run reports for me. And Buffy, of course, was insane. It was like 67% or something like that female. But Stargate was 48% female, which just that meeting was hilarious where I've got, you know, old school PowerPoints up, you know. (laughs) So here's my chart of who our audience is. And we need to be going where they are because that's who you should be talking to. And you're doing a lot of content that speaks male. And that's great for this part of your audience, but you're missing an enormous chunk over here. And it's, it is still amazing to me, the conversations, the rooms I'm in where I'm the only woman where I am fighting for a female audience. I just went through it for a recent project where literally the presumption with no data to back it up was that the majority of the audience was male. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's got to be so frustrating, especially when you have the data to back it, when you have the actual data to back it up. I mean, I know like one of like a lot of the people on my podcast, I met through the fandom of Supernatural, which Supernatural was originally, of course, marketed for for men. But the the fandom, if you go to yeah. any convention for Supernatural, there's maybe like two or three yeah. men in the audience. Yeah. It's all female. And yeah. it really is amazing because it spills over because I work with graphic novels as well. And and video games. And mm-hmm. for each of these, the presumption by let's call it the powers that be is still sometimes even when you have women executives, the default is to presume that it's 52% male, 48% female. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of this weird default graph they use. And so, you know, it'll switch around, but it is rarely, Hey, you've got 60 some odd percent or more female. And what, just kills me that nobody's paying attention to is that it's there's an 18 to 34 year old group that are rediscovering all of these shows. And I've got all this data that says, Hey, these guys are watching your TikToks that you're not making. We are, you know, hashtag Buffy and you've got two point some million of which those are 18 to 34 or 18 to 24, frankly. And you, everybody's sitting there going, Oh no, 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 no. Those are no, uh-uh. Those are too old. Those people, they're not, they're young. They're watching something new. They're watching Titans. I'm like, yeah, sure. They're watching Titans, but they're also watching this. You think they don't spend that screen time watching something that they think is going to 
represent them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. I mean, when I go on TikTok, which TikTok is one of those social media platforms that still kind of confuses me. I'm still trying to learn it. <laughs> it really confuses me, but I but I love going uh, in going down TikTok, right. you know, rabbit right. holes. And there's so much Buffy content lately. I've I've been noticing a lot of it, and um, you know, and and it, it's not all from people in like my age group or people that grew up watching it or anything. It's uh-huh. from younger people, and I. So I wonder though, once once you get someone's attention and you got like you know maybe the creators or they're like okay yes we'll go and we'll interact with our fandom again. Maybe we haven't for a while. How how does that work? Like how does it is that like interacting with tick with just social media or does that go to conventions as well or how it's all and it's all of it so what you always want to do regardless if it's for what i do with fandom development if it's marketing or content production you always have to ask where's your audience that's that is one of the first keys that your exec is always going to ask in your pitch you could give the greatest most amazing idea that's never been done before and i did this once for star wars and was mortified and embarrassed because they said well but where would your audience be? And I was stumped. And this is when I was really young and I hadn't thought it through. In our case, what I do and what my consultancy does is that whether we're talking to a production company, a studio, an author, or a fandom, we ask, where's your audience? Where's your fandom? Where are they living? And now, as opposed to even just five years ago, there's you know literally a pie chart that I show my, all of my clients. And I say, we've got to look at where are they most? So it would be social almost always, but remarkably, because everything old is new again, email marketing, which just made me laugh because that was my old school thing. But there's, there's a lot of diehard franchise newsletters that are at the one, two and 3 million mark because they get what they consider to be personal information. And a newsletter is much easier for some people to do than a TikTok or something on social or a live. And then cons, events, those are huge. And then you've got interaction with talent, which can be anything. It can be at those cons. It could be online. You've got PR. So the, then you've got the standards. You've got the marketing, the PR, and the paid media. But the, the ones that I find to be the most successful are social and then what you would call the social, um, the, the paths that have come off of that, which is YouTube, Twitch, et cetera, which we have to pay attention to. And then honestly, it's events and talent. Then part of that, which is all tied into it, is partnerships. Because so, for instance, you're a Supernatural fan. You have a podcast. If I'm working on a Supernatural event, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to say, hey, let's do something together. Those are really important. Most people, when you pitch a partnership at a studio, they immediately go, oh, yeah, we, we just pitched to Mattel and Coke. No, no, no. For fandom, what you want to look at is, is there a geek collectible? Is there a Funko? Is there a podcast? Is there, that's, that is a huge chunk of what I do that's in the more quote unquote corporate part of it. But the part that really, I think, connects is going where they are online going where they are in events and making sure that you are targeting the right content and the right information to those fans. And the only way that happens is if you ask them ahead of time, if you've, if you spent the time and done the relationship with them, that's, and that's how you do it. How we usually interact with those owners are either 
someone comes to me and says, we're going to do this new program or this new series or something within this franchise, and we'd like you to work with our agency or our internal department. Or somebody comes to me and says, we want you to put together the team to go work on this. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, we come up with a plan, a pitch, a campaign. How do we think that this is going to work? We usually spend at least a month on discovery. We may think we know where their audience is, even if it's something that I'm personally a fan of. And then we give a campaign that is almost always not just that initial, because that's the biggest mistake that the studios and the IP owners make, is you do the campaign and then it's radio silence. Literally, it's off a cliff. And it's called windowing, which is it's going to be released or the season or the streaming is going to happen on this date. We're going to push six weeks or three months before, three weeks after, and then we're done. We're moving on. And one of the things that I work with these studios and production companies a lot is, no, please keep that relationship going. You have to sustain that relationship with fandom. It's not that hard. And of course, now we've got huge examples like Star Wars and Marvel. I will not say that Warner Brothers is doing a good job of this necessarily. Um, So we can point to that and say, you don't have to spend millions. Let me show you how you can do this very simply internally. Yeah, and and also just also what stuck, struck me there was when you were talking about newsletters because to me email seems like it's such a thing that people don't use as much anymore. So when you said that with that that kind of so you have to be really 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 um focused in and zeroed in on fandom to know that that's what they want, which it makes sense though because if you're looking at like like you said, it feels more personal because even though social media can feel personal, getting something like that does feel more personal and yeah. um, intimate and um, and also fanfic as well, which I know fanfic for the longest time was something you don't bring up. No, Lord. Yeah. I mean, I could never I could never bring it up with studios. It was hilarious. And or fan art. Um, yeah, that too. For ages, I always wanted to do a fan art gallery, like a digital art gallery. Could not, it was in every single solitary proposal I gave at Fox at MGM for years. And Sony never got anybody to say yes until finally I got somebody at Fox to say yes. And so we did it for Bond and we did it, I can't remember, I think it was for Predators. And it's it just took forever to get anybody to realize. And of course, they're just it's legal departments. You know, that's yeah. the other thing is that everything is unsolicited content. So if you do it and you give it, and of course, then you don't you want to be careful. You don't want to ask fans to do fan art and then they think it's like free design. And you don't you don't ever want to do that. You want it to be out of the joy that they love whatever particular series or movie franchise we were doing we don't want it to come across like we got free art from these fans that's the worst possible message you could give so fanfic and fan art are are still super sensitive gray areas frankly um you'll see some studios do it and if you do see it it's because most likely the production company pushed for it because they're the ones that are up for it. Like Ryan Murphy, I worked with their production company for years on Glee and American Horror Story. Mm-hmm. And we were able to do a lot with them because he pushed for it. And so he was the owner or Sons of Anarchy. So Kurt Sutter pushed for it. Those were things that we could do because the owner, because that <laughs> they were the owner of the IP, wanted to do it. So it was really cool. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. We've talked a lot about Ryan Murphy projects on our on our yeah, podcast. I know. I saw, I lots, saw of, that. lots of deep dives into Ryan Murphy yeah, um, yeah. stuff. Um, so that's that's interesting that 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 he was pushing for that because I I have seen some and now some of them are just escaping my mind, but I have seen like some franchises be like, oh, this is going to be fan art Thursday, and we want to yeah. see your fan art. And because I can understand there are I I know personally, there are fans that are very, very hesitant about that because they're worried that the IP is going to steal their work. And they should should be. Mm -hmm. Honestly, they should be protective. There's uh, a girl that I I just love. She's a fan out of Germany named her name on Twitter is Steph. But she does absolutely beautiful Star Trek and Stargate art. Absolutely stunning. And I never I, I used or I asked her if I could use one of her Stargates only once. Because it's gorgeous art. And I could just see that going sideways. I just, you know, there's as as good as the people were internally that I was working with at the time. You don't know what the next round is going to be of management. You don't know what the next round of executives are going to be. And they're going to say they own it. And mm-hmm. for fanfic, more importantly, that's a big one. And you don't want someone who has poured their heart and soul literally into a franchise of their own, a story arc of their own and have that be bastardized or stolen or just ignored. Like we're just going to take bits and pieces of it, you know, Frankenstein it. That's just, it's happened. I've watched it happen. And so I, I, MGM was one of the best. It was really hard for me because they were really strict, but one of the reasons they were is that they never wanted to watch or see something in fanfic and then accidentally have it show up somewhere else because that happens. Spontaneous mm-hmm. generation of ideas is, is a thing. And you don't want to be in a writer's room and forget that you saw something or read something or it was online and you, you're putting together an idea and it's because you were influenced by something that you saw five years ago. So MGM's hardcore about it. You can't read fanfic you can't look online if you're in the writer's room for this the that series time you can't and i think that's great you know if we in, in content production want to put something together that's different but the writer's room is not allowed to ah that's interesting no that that's good to know because i know in the supernatural fandom because that's where i've written my fanfic right is mainly supernatural and I know some fanfic writers will be like, I know those writers are looking at my fanfic because this happened or that happened, or I know right. they're, you know, doing that. So that's that's a good thing to know because I know that there are fanfic writers that do worry about that. And it's true. I mean, it's like, you know, there aren't really necessarily original, original ideas. There are takes right. on different ideas. So it can happen and you don't even realize it's happening. So I, I Yeah, and trust me, I mean, and one of the things I always want fanfic authors to know because a, my respect is amazing for all of you because I, I don't know how you do it. I love it. I love to read fanfic. It's so much fun. What is really important, I think, for everyone in the fandom fanfic of particular series or franchises area to know is that I have been in a room where I've heard pitches from writers and four of them came in with the same idea had never met each other, had never talked to each other. We hadn't given them any direction, but because they were diehard fans of the franchise that we were asking for pitches, they all had come up with ideas that in some frame, you know, not exactly the same, but they were in the same storytelling, the same story. And 
I just, I remember one of the producers saying, I don't get it. How come these are all the same? Did they all talk to each other? And, and a bunch of us were, no, if you're a diehard fan, then you know that canon inside out and backwards. You know where the gaps are. You know where the possibilities are. You know where the shippers can, those great stories can be. There's going to be common denominators in those. And there's going to be four out of the 60 who are going to hit on that same theme of a story because they're diehard canon fans. So they get it. They understand it. One of the few people who really always got that was the head of the creative story group at Lucasfilm. And he, he started Wikipedia and they hired him and brought him in. And he really understood because he was a fan first. Same with Bonnie Burton, who was a fan first and was hired to do StarWars.com. They understood as a fan why, where fans were coming from, why they needed to be heard, why their fanfic was important, why that needed to be sacrosanct and couldn't be, shouldn't be touched. So you've got people out there who are banging the drum for it, but there are people who are not ethical and it could have happened for sure. Yeah. And I think that being a fan first, like you said, and I'm sure with, with your job, that helps so much because you're a fan first and you know then what the fandom would want and what that interaction would want, I would assume, too, that you know kind of. I hope so. I, mean, <laughs> I hate to say, I, I don't mean that to sound um, false modesty or anything. It's just I'm very careful not to presume that I know it yeah. because as much as I'm a diehard fan of almost every franchise I work on, it doesn't mean that I got it down. Like I suck at trivia, like forget it. And I, I was, I was at a con for, I can't remember what it was, if it was Star Trek or Stargate, but they said, Oh, you got to be on the trivia at, at the pub and do it with us. Oh my God. I failed. And I told them, don't, don't <laughs> use me. I'm horrible at this. And they just could not understand how I could be this diehard of Anne do what I do and not know this stuff. And I'm like, cause that's not where my brain goes. That's just not how it works. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, being funny aside, I, I hope it's why I do it. I love sci-fi geek properties. I love franchises. I love reading it. I love watching it. I love going to the movies. I love the experience with other fans at cons. And I'm really lucky that I get to do what I do. Yeah, I mean, I I I can only imagine. I feel that way sometimes with my podcast, but in with yeah. you being able to market too, and and um, working with those the the IPs and the franchises as well. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm, I'm wondering, though, the, the parasocial relationship, because sometimes mm-hmm. I'm sure that comes into play with this. Or, or does it? Or does that influence things? Or does it influence, like, maybe there's a creator that's a little bit hesitant to get involved with a fandom? Oh, no, it is. Absolutely. And it's always different. So just like you have to look and see where the fans are, you have to look and see what your creators are comfortable with and what your IP owners, because sometimes the creator and the owners are not the same thing. And it's got to be what's, what you're comfortable. Ryan was, Murphy was really comfortable with anything. Kurt Sutter interested in anything I threw at him, would do anything. I did crazy stuff, but there are other creators. I'm working with an author right now. She's all in. Another author that I'm working with is very, you know, she's much more introspective and it's not going to be her thing. So it, it really tends to depend on who you're working with and you have to craft that proposal and that idea and campaign for however long it is going to be to fit, not just the fan, but the creator, what can they handle? What are they willing to do? And if they can't do a lot of it, then are there fans that you can go to and bring them in? And we do that a lot where we bring in fans and say, hey, we'd love for you to do a weekly or a monthly or do some content. We're going to pay you. And this is what we'd love for you to do because we need somebody to pick this up. Oh, wow. Yeah. See, it's it's so interesting hearing all of this stuff because it's stuff that you've I've kind of heard about, but never heard like the different intricate workings of it. Because I because I know that there you will see that with the parasocial thing where you will see where you have an actor who, you know, for instance, for like Misha Collins is very, right. very, very interactive with with the yeah. fans um, and used to do like that whole gishwiz and all of right. that. Right. And but what you watch with that is if that person or anyone in the fandom like takes something the wrong way, things mm-hmm. can snowball. So does that ever happen with any of these campaigns where you have to kind oh, of all the time, and, yeah. all the time? And it's there's a it's a tricky balancing act, and you don't always get it right. And it it is in the process. So if if you're looking at the process of what we do, it usually starts with the owner, the IP owner. Occasionally, I'll get something from a fandom or from a publisher, for instance, you know, the other end of the the spectrum. But usually you get the studio, the creator, the IP owner comes to you and says, we've got seven books. We've got four movies. We've got continuing movies of what we've already done. We've seen what you do. We want you to do this. Come back to talk to us. They rarely give us a lot of information of what they're looking for. So at that point, what we have to do is we have to look at all of those variables. So what's the studio willing to do? You have to go back and look at what have they done? What's the creator willing to do? What are the actors and actresses or the writers willing to do? What can they do? Some are good, some are not at it. And all of those variables have to go into what we're looking at doing. And then you have to also look at where the fans. So like I said, go to where the fans are. Well, what are the fans like? Well, they might have loved this type of content two years ago, but they're done with that. It's old. They're over it. So now we have to look at something new. And that's something that the studios and that I hopefully can bring to them is that a lot of the studios get a a lot of proposals that are templatized by agencies, by digital and social agencies. And it's why I left to do consulting is that you start to either I've been on the agency side and I've been on the, the client studio franchise owner side you start to templatize it because you're doing so many a year. 
When I was at Fox, by the by the time I left, I was doing 70 shows a year oh as a gosh. as a producer. And you just it's you can't give the love that you should be giving to each of those, let alone spending the time that you should be spending with that fandom and with the showrunners that you should be doing. And you you drop balls. There's just no way around it. So what you want to do is make sure you're not giving the same old idea that was hot six months ago, but nobody gives a shit now. So you, you want to make sure that you're doing that. So you combine all of those together and you look at, okay, where's the sweet spot? And usually what we try to do is we try to give a number of ideas that, that hopefully rely on the strengths of their writers group, their producers, the studio, the actors, the author, if there's an author, and then also relies on the strengths of the fandom where are they? What are they interested in? There's standards that you can't go wrong with. I mean, there's some that, you know, content that is behind the scenes content mm-hmm. pretty much can't go wrong with that. One of the, the um, progressions of fandom that is really cool to me is that so much of fandom now loves to pull the curtain back, loves to see what's going on. How did the writers do it? What's the process? What was production? You went on location. What was the location scout? I mean, really cool stuff, stunts, obviously all of that that opens up the type of content that we can provide for fans. And so that you could have a studio that doesn't want to spend money, a creator that does is burnt out and doesn't want to do anything anymore. Actress and actresses, actors and actresses who are not into it, but my God, the crew will do anything. And so you could do all this behind the scenes and provide that content for fandom. So that's how you go through. That's how you do it. And if you've got potential variables of actors and actresses or writers, quite quite frankly, because everybody's super, super verbal and vocal on social now. Um, You have to go look at what is their trail? What have they written about? Do they have some of them, some of the writers now have blogs and emails and newsletters. And like I said, everything old is new again. And so you have to go back and you read those and you have to spend a lot of time doing research What's their voice? Is this a voice that's okay for us to use? Or would this strike a bad note, either for the fans or for the studio? And so all of that goes into a great big uh, stew, basically. Wow. Wow. Really, this is so interesting to me just because <laughs> this is different sides of it that I haven't heard before or it's haven't fun. felt I love into. it. Oh, I bet. I bet. I bet. And um, I am wondering though, and this just kind of hit me. Um, and if you can talk about it, if you can't, then that's fine. But yeah. um, with the Writers Guild strike and with the pending that um, there might be SAG after and there might yeah. be the DGA, does that at all affect your area, like your marketing, or is that oh, like for sure? Oh no, absolutely. I started preparing for this in January. So the, the nice thing about being a consultant is I'm not just at one place. And so I could talk to a lot of friends and say, look, do you really think this is going to happen? And yeah, it was going to happen. There were two options for a last minute deal that didn't happen. And what's fascinating from my point of view is that I, I, my background was not just in entertainment or fandom. It was tech as well. And what was fascinating for me over the past four or five years Um, is watching 2019 CES to now with streaming and tech and how the studios handle it. And you could see, even in the 2008 strike, which I was on um, the Writers Guild side, so I didn't cross the line, that (laughs) they knew digital was going to be a thing and they knew that it was going to be a problem. 
And the negotiation they had in 2008 led to this strike because the, the writers knew just, you know, technology is exponential. We all know that. Moore's Law. So what they were seeing in 2008, they knew from everybody that was giving them consults, it was going to be 40 times worse 16 years from them. So what I find fascinating is that the studios and AMPTP should have been a lot more prepared for this. So for instance, and I don't know if this is right, you'll have to double check me. I think Netflix is the only one that's an actual member of AMPTP. So Amazon and Apple are negotiating out of the table at the table out of good faith. I, I think I have that right. Which means you've got all these different players at the table talking about streaming and AI. And mm-hmm. for all of us in content production, in digital, in marketing, for I mean, and for me, mine covers so much of before, during, and after a production. My, I was dead in the water in March because they were already planning for it. So for me, I just shifted over to authors. <laughs> so ah, I started, yeah. I was last year, I was really, really lucky. Um, an executive producer friend of mine at MGM, she left and she's doing um, a bunch of sci-fi fantasy stuff with authors. And she asked me to come on board. And so I've been working with authors. That's been a blast. That is how you have to do it as a consultant. But in entertainment, you have to have something on the back burner all the time. And the, the strike, SAG's going to strike unless, unless AMPTP comes back to the table and meets everybody halfway on AI and on streaming rights, which I don't think they will. I mean, they were, they were pretty hardcore four weeks ago. So I think this is going to go on for a while and it's going to affect all of us, unfortunately. Yeah, that's, that's my thinking too. I think it's going to be, it's going to be interesting also watching like big conventions like uh, San Diego Comic-Con and right. and stuff like that and seeing, because I know they're already, ta- you know, the Writers Guild was already talking about going down there and striking. So if you, and if SAG's already striking, you know, who well, are you yeah, have and there? So, <laughs> and so, I, so I've got two panels at San Diego Comic-Con and uh, two tables for my clients. And right now I'm okay. I've got <laughs> actors who will come and writers who will come. Because they're in a gray area. But two of the actors have been, and God love them, have been very honest about Dragon Con that if if SAG goes on strike, they won't be there for my panel at Dragon Con. Mm -hmm. And I get it. I completely get it. And every appearance contract that I've seen recently has said, caveat at the bottom, if the writer's strike has continued and it's affecting Screen Actors Guild or Screen Actors Guild goes on strike, I cannot appear. So yeah. it's for fandom, it's going to affect our series, our films. I mean, obviously, everybody's already seen so many of the films and series have already been put on hold that we're looking forward to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then cons and events are going to be a huge problem. What's what's going to be funny is our old school actors going to still go because it's their livelihood. Yeah. That's where I think it's going to be really tough for a lot of them where they might not have an active show, but they are Screen Actors Guild members. So can they strike a a gray area, a middle ground? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be very it's a very interesting time right now. And, um, you know, just to see where that goes and what happens there. And 
Um, from a yeah. business standpoint, it's fascinating. Yeah. From, yeah. from a livelihood standpoint, it's scary. <laughs> uh, yeah, I bet. I bet. Yeah. I, I can only imagine. Yeah. I have friends that do, um, you know, like do makeup and special effects as well. Oh, and they're like, yeah, we, you know, and, yeah. and it's, you know, and everybody's in support. It's just a very hard time when you, you know, cause it, yeah. like you said, when you're in entertainment, when you're in any kind of field like that, you have to have, it's hard to rely on that all the time because yeah. it's not something that's necessarily going to be. And you always have to have a backup, right? Yeah. Was, I mean, everybody that I, well, at least that I've worked with in this industry, unless you're working full-time for a studio, you always have to have a backup plan. If that pilot doesn't run or that series doesn't pick up or that film gets put on hold or they drop it. And in, on top of that is that I'm not sure that there's a phrase that we have in the entertainment industry that anytime there's a recession or inflation, entertainment is the last in on it. We can hold out, but we're unfortunately also the last back in. So we're the last to be affected, but we are the last to be on the upswing. And it's usually because people will want to hold on to that luxury item. Usually. I mean, it's ironic. A lot of people go, Oh yeah, no, I cut my streaming. No, they do. So they'll, they'll wait, they'll wait, they'll wait, they'll wait, they'll wait. It'll be one of the very last luxury items they get rid of. But then it's also once they've cut that, it is one of the last things that they will bring back. And so a lot of people in the entertainment industry right now are very worried that if we are going to have continued inflation or continued economic struggles, we're not in a recession, but if there's challenges with it, the strike does does not help but you can't make a decision on striking based on whether or not you think there might be an inflation or economic downturn mm-hmm. now is the time to strike it's just the entertainment industry had not recovered correctly from covid and there's enormous inequities in the entertainment industry enormous inequities and i i i almost wish that that they had struck which was discussed briefly during covid because I think maybe they would have listened more Hmm. because they hadn't quite figured out that they were going to make bank during COVID. Now they feel AMPTP and the studios feel a little bit more cocky about their negotiating, their leverage. And the inequities are insane. Insane. You know, I, I I hope that everybody who's listening understands that you've got that top 4% of people that make a lot of money and everybody else barely makes it. And that's the majority of the entertainment industry. And all they're asking for is they're literally not even asking for a fair share. (laughs) Just, Hey, can you, can you make it a little bit more even for us? And thank you for stressing that because I tr- try to stress that as well because I do think some fans and viewers are under a misconception that everybody in the entertainment industry are millionaires Absolutely. or billionaires. And it's and it's not true. So yeah. it's so that's a big thing to stress. Isn't I get it? it. I do get it. I mean, if if all you're seeing and all you're hearing is on every single show, podcast, you know, newsletter, blog, TikTok is that so-and-so just made million on this movie, or even just that this showrunner made $5 million on just two episodes. Your perception is that that's everybody on that show. 
Mm-hmm. And there are so many support services and supplemental services and industries, mine included, that, you know, I'm a producer and I don't have a guild that I can belong to because the producers guild sort of acknowledges digital, but you need to have a sponsor. So there's an enormous group of us who have talked for years about unionizing, but <laughs> <laughs> but when you have a lot of independent people who feel very independent, it's very hard to get them together and organize. So yeah. that has literally been talked about since 1992 and we've never done it. So we have, we have lots of associations and organizations, but we just can't get our shit together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it is, it's, it's, it takes a village to make any piece of entertainment you watch and a village of, of people while you're making it beforehand, after all of that, it takes a village. And I think people need to realize that more because it's not just the people you're seeing on screen or that famous person that, you know, and not to say that some of the people you're seeing on screen aren't getting screwed as well. It's just, it's just, you know, I don't, I think people just view it in that lens. So, cause I see comments from people going, oh, they need to stop complaining. I'm like, <laughs> look in the bigger, look at the bigger picture. I do get it. I do understand if you're the one that's a fan and you're at home and you've got a family of four or five and you're just thankful that crap, you know, I got dinner on the table this week. You know, hearing what you think is the Hollywood person complaining is is a hard pill to swallow. I, yeah. I completely get it. But it's again, it's why I love that fandom is more into pulling that curtain back and looking at production. It's one of the benefits or the side benefits of doing that is that you get to understand how many careers there are, how many industries there are. Supporting, like you said, takes a village, supporting this one series, this one film, this one franchise. And it's cool for the fans to be able to see that because then suddenly you go, oh, wait, right. I just saw that really cool thing on the makeup. And oh, my God, it takes five of them to do just this one yeah. scene. So it's it's good, I think, in that kind of cool side result that you didn't think was going to happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, I could talk to you forever, but we are going to go ahead and we have to wrap up. No, but it's, seriously, that was really, really interesting. We'll have to maybe have you back sometime too. Sure. Um, but if you want to tell everybody where they can find you as well. Yeah, you bet. You can find me on Twitter at Jenny Steven. You can find me at on TikTok at Geek with Gray Hair. You can find me on Instagram at JS Steven. And if any of you want, have an idea or you want to talk to me, you can always email me at cleoconsulting at gmail.com. I answer all emails. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. It has been such a pleasure talking with you. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. I will always talk about fandom. Thank you so much, Jenny, for sitting down with me. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. It was such a different look at uh, the industry and also at fandom and how important fandom is. So thank you so much. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod. On Twitter at Fandom Thing Pod. No, it's in that one. On Instagram at It's a Fandom Thing Pod. On TikTok at It's a Fandom Thing Pod. If you have any feedback, show notes, if you'd like to be a potential interview guest on the show, please feel free to reach out to us via our website. It's a fandom thing Click the contact us button there and that'll shoot me an email and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. So until next time, remember it's a fandom thing. Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.